The book of Proverbs is really unique in the Bible. It's not like really any other book of the Bible. It's all these pithy sayings and statements of wisdom, like giving you not rules of life, but wisdom for life so you can make good and wise choices. Except for this one passage. There's like this one passage in Proverbs chapter 30 that's actually called an oracle or like a prophecy. And this one passage just happens to be the same passage that talks about Jesus in the book of Proverbs. We're going to be digging into this today. I'm Mike Winger, and this is my Monday live stream. Currently, I'm in the middle of the series on Mark. We're getting towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, but we're doing like a couple other things over probably this week and next week. So I'm dipping back into my Jesus in the Old Testament, my favorite topic. I love finding Christ in the Old Testament and finding him legitimately and backing it up with, with exegetical, careful verse-by-verse analysis. So this, to me, is the passage in the book of Proverbs that is most obviously about Jesus. We're going to read it right now, and you will immediately see what I mean. But then I want to talk about alternate interpretations and how it's it's better than you think. It's brilliantly, I mean... It's good. Okay, let's dig into it. This is um, Proverbs chapter 30. This is chapter 30, verses 1 through 4. The words of Agur, the son of Jakeh, the oracle. The man declares to to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. And that that right there, obviously this is a big deal, okay? When you read in Proverbs, we're talking Old Testament here. We're talking hundreds of years before Christ shows up, before the clarity about the Son of God is really fully understood. And we have this, this thing in Proverbs 30 about what is the name of God? What is his son's name? And it's just left as a riddle that is ultimately then answered by the New Testament, answered by Jesus Christ. But it's, I'm telling you, it's better than you think. So what we're going to do is go through this thing step by step and unpack how deeply and how beautifully Proverbs chapter 30 foreshadows Christ, the only prophecy that I'm aware of in the book of Proverbs and guess who it just happens to be about. Okay, so let's first talk about this guy, Agur. Who is he? Uh, This is easy. We don't know. (laughs) We don't really know much of anything about Agur. There's very little knowledge of of this person because this is the only time he's talked about in the Bible. And so what we do have, however, is... um, the son of Jacob might mean, some people think maybe Jacob actually saying he's like a philosopher, that it's not who he's the son of, but it's rather saying he's he's a philosopher. Um, but the word oracle is is written here. And the idea with this, with this word oracle is that he has like something, a revelation that God has like given him. That's, that's the idea. This is prophecy. And it's, to my knowledge, the only one in the book of Proverbs. And he addresses it to Ithiel and to Ukal. And notice the word Ithiel is, is written twice. Now, some translations will actually say that this Ithiel is, and Ukal, that these names aren't names at all. They're actually, um, they're actually descriptive words that refer to, you know, the, the state Agur is in. And so the, the, uh, the translation, the ESV version, it, it does it this way. Translates these not as names, but as descriptors. So the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. That's Ithiel. Remember, Ithiel was written twice. So he's like, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary, O God. Ithiel's like weary and God put together. And I'm worn out. And that would be Ukau. 
So this may be the right interpretation. Uh, scholars seem like they're not really sure. They're, they're, they're having a hard time knowing the right way to translate verse 1, the end of verse 1 there. This could be the right you know, way. ESV might be correct. If they are, it does fit the passage because the passage then goes on to say how frustrated he is in all the knowledge he's gained that he still feels like he's majorly lacking in this one important area of knowing God. And so he's kind of like, it's like Ecclesiastes where he's studied and studied and researched. And then at the end of it, he just feels like an idiot. And so this might be the idea of the more you study, the more you realize you don't know. That could be what's going on here with this ithiel, ithiel, and ukal phrase. And I'm looking at the NASB on your screen at the moment. Um, so then he goes on and says in verse two, surely I'm more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. This is obviously a really extreme statement, but I don't think now Proverbs is poetry. Okay. And this is meant to be poetic. We're meant to like take it in context to understand what he means by this. He's not trying to suggest that his IQ is low. He, what he's trying to say is, not that he's just dumb and foolish, but Agur is saying that absent the knowledge of God that he talks about, oh, I, I don't I don't know the wisdom of God. I don't know God himself. I don't know him deeply. I don't know him intimately. And he's saying absent that, all my other knowledge doesn't really count for much. Now, this is a remarkably New Testament type teaching. The idea that all of my research and all of my wisdom and all of my knowledge and all of my efforts as a human trying to comprehend all the things around me, they amount to nothing apart from knowing God, apart from knowing God. So this is um, a guard against the arrogance that man has when when we feel like we know some things. I remember re, uh, hearing the story. I don't know if I've, I haven't checked to see if this quote was true. But as I've heard the story, it goes like this, that there was a, um, a Russian cosmonaut, you know, an astronaut who went up into um, uh, space and there he said he reported back after having been you know the first people in space and said I looked around and I didn't find God and this that's a perfect summary if you guys have heard this quote before perfect summary of the kind of arrogance that humans come up with we we start to know a little bit of things and then we figure therefore I've answered some riddles of life and therefore uh, I don't need God or God doesn't exist even um, as if as if uh, any Christians were out there saying that God was like literally this gigantic old person in the clouds, <laughs> which I've heard many atheists say that we believe in a sky daddy and a person up in the clouds and all this. But um, that's not Christianity. That's just something else. Um, rather, Agur says, yeah, you know what? I, I know stuff. I've learned things. But as I've learned, it's humbled me. And I've realized how much I don't know. And I know this is, this is my journey. I, I've never studied so much as I have in the past few years getting to do this online thing full time. So I just get to study, 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 teach, study, teach. And I'm allowed to <clears throat> spend way more time reading and studying than ever before. And I've been doing it for years now. And the the realization that there's so much I don't know. There's so much I don't understand. And I understand more than I ever have before, but I but I don't feel arrogant about that knowledge. I feel small. And I think that that's, that's just healthy. This is like how you ought to feel. Agur feels this way. And the content of it, the, the context is here at the end of Proverbs, at the end of all the wisdom that God gives us, we realize that if we don't know God himself, all that wisdom, it doesn't amount to all that much. So let's look at verse three. This is why he's stupid. This is why Agur is like, I'm the dumbest guy out here. <clears throat> he says, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Now this is, <clears throat> in in the in the poetic working, if, if you look at um, 
Proverbs or, or Psalms, you'll see there's like flow of thought. And here's a little poetic section. Verses 2 and 3 is like one section where he says, you know, four phrases or maybe it's five. Um, he says, surely I'm more stupid than any man and I do not have the understanding of a man. Okay, so I'm lacking majorly in knowledge. Neither have I learned wisdom. These, are, these three statements are all very similar. <clears throat> I'm, I'm dumb. I don't have understanding. I don't have wisdom. Then the fourth one gives you what he's talking about really. Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. I, what, I, what I'm missing, what I'm lacking is my knowledge of God. Now, here's where you have to say, wait a minute, Agur, you, you, know, you know who God is. Like you're, you're one of the Israelites. Here, here at the time of the writing of Proverbs, they've already got Torah. They've got the Old Testament, at least portions of it, significant amounts of the Old Testament already. And here they are going, uh, <clears throat> here's Agur going, I don't know God. I don't know God. And because he's not just saying, I don't know who God is. I don't just know facts about God. He's saying, I don't know who, I don't know God, like intimately, personally. I don't have the knowledge of God intimately. Now, I, I think I can support this even more if we look at the rest of Proverbs. This is where it starts to get exciting to me. And you realize Proverbs has a has an important message about Jesus that I, I think nobody ever talks about. <clears throat> All right, Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, many of us know this verse. The beginning of Proverbs, the intro, the opening of the book, chapter one, it wants to tell you, hey, if you want real wisdom, real wisdom is seeing yourself in perspective with God, where you, you reverence and you fear God. And if you don't fear God, all the wisdom you have isn't going to amount to much. Well, that sounds a lot like what Agur is saying, but he's saying something better and more. We'll get into it in a minute. Uh, in Proverbs 9, I won't go there, but in Proverbs 9, it goes on to say again, here kind of a third of the way through Proverbs, it says knowing that knowing God is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is just knowing God, the knowledge of God. Then again, in chapter 15, I'll go to this passage, 1533, the fear of the Lord is in the instruction for wisdom and before honor comes humility. So here again, halfway through the book of Proverbs, we're reminded that knowing God, or at least fearing God, not just knowing him, but fearing God or respecting and reverencing God, that's, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. But at the end of Proverbs, after you feel like you've stockpiled up tons and tons of wisdom, we get to Proverbs 30. And here's Agur. And he's he's obviously one of the authors of Proverbs. He's a great wise man. And he just calls himself an idiot because he doesn't really know God deeply. And this is where what Agur says here at the end of Proverbs is a little different than what we get earlier in Proverbs. Because earlier in Proverbs, it was more like respecting God, fearing God. Now you can fear God in, in, in a healthy sense, not like terror, like you don't like you don't trust him, like he might hurt you for no reason, but but right respect with, with his authority and his power and his goodness, his holiness, the fact that he's judge, the fact that we'll all stand before him and be accountable, that kind of reverence and respect. But this is not what Agur seems to be talking about. He seems to be just talking about knowing God more intimately. He wants to know God more deeply. So here at the beginning of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is just seeing your life in perspective compared to God. And if you ignore God, you, you, you don't even have the beginning of wisdom. But then at the end of wisdom, Proverbs 30, at the end of the book, knowing God intimately, that's the true wisdom. That's the deep wisdom. This is, this is the need of mankind is to know God intimately and personally. But there's a massive problem with this. And that starts in verse 4 and goes for the rest of our little section we're reading today, which is you don't know God. Who can know God? There's a problem and he talks about it in detail. So the first question he asks, he asks like a series of questions to explain the problem. Who's ascended into heaven and descended? Uh, that first question in verse four is like saying, um, 
Nobody has like the ability to go up to God to just talk to him. Okay. Normally humans, when we have relations with each other, relationships, we spend time together intimately. That's how you get to know somebody. And yet all we have from God, even, even from the ancient Israel perspective is, is him giving you information. So you're like, it's kind of like the difference between reading, um, say a, an author you love, you read their works, but you don't get to spend time hanging out with them. You kind of know them, but you don't really know them the way that their spouse does, the way that their friends do. And so we don't know God intimately because we can't access God casually. We can't just go and be in front of him and ask him questions, find out what he's like. Now you might say, um, this, this phrase ascended and descended, this is, this is key to understanding the question, the first question. You might say Moses ascended and descended, right? When God, when the, um, when God gave the law to the, to the, to the Jewish people, when they brought, he brought them out of Egypt, then Moses goes up to the mountain and there God met with him. Okay. So Moses ascended and descended, got information from God and brought it back, but it wasn't like the free access, right? God's giving them a specific revelation. It's not the kind of relational access that Agur is talking about. Even the prophets who, you know, did go up to see God more intimately, there was some limit to their knowledge of God, right? When Moses says, God, show me your glory. God's like, yeah, I'm not going to show you my full glory. I'll cover you. I'll pass by. I'll declare who I am. I'll declare my name, right? But you're not going to like know me intimately is, is my, my paraphrase of this, my interpretation. And then, you know, he sees kind of like the afterglow of God. I'll use a, a crude term that I think is a good one. And... <clears throat> Then we have like people like say Isaiah, Isaiah saw the Lord, Isaiah chapter six, but Isaiah, there's a limit there too, because Isaiah doesn't actually get to like intimately know God. Instead, he just trembles in fear and he gets a message and then he goes and delivers the message. So he had like a, he had like a revelation of God, but it's like, it's like this shocking, powerful moment seeing God and then going back, but it's not bringing this intimate knowledge of God. It's the fear of the Lord, but it's not like knowing God. Right? It's the beginning Proverbs 1, but it's not Proverbs 30, what Agur is talking about. In the tabernacle, the, the, the Jews had the presence of God right there in the tabernacle, but they weren't allowed to go in. So what I'm saying is what Agur talks about and complains about here, who's ascended and descended, this is a perpetual problem in the Old Testament. You and God are distant from each other. Even Israel, God's chosen people, even the ones where his presence dwells, they cannot really access him. They can just get his instructions but they can't know him intimately. So this is um, a, a, a sad realization for us as humans because we're talking about all of our human condition. I, I know there's a God. I know I'm accountable to him, but I don't know him. I still feel far off, far away. It's solved by Christ. It's solved by the solution to the final question, what is his son's name? Um, that's what solves the problem. We'll get there when we get there here. So that's a sad realization. I know about God but it doesn't mean I know God intimately. That's the need, the need of mankind. Man's incomplete without knowing God. Does it, does it not sound like I'm preaching New Testament gospel here from Proverbs chapter 30? Yes, I think it does. <laughs> um, this is what Job complained about though, is that he, he didn't have a mediator between him and God to bring him to God. And he's so different from God that he can't go to God himself. So the reason why I'm bringing up Moses and Isaiah and the tabernacle and Job and the law itself, all, all these things is to show you that what Agur is saying here is part of an overall message in the Old Testament about a need that is not being met through the law, but people need it. They still need it. They want it. They desire it. It's going to be met through Christ. And while the Old Testament doesn't give you that kind of intimate knowledge of God and nobody there seems to have it, 
in Jeremiah 31, 34, we have a prophecy that it will happen in the future. Because I want to show the unity of the Bible here, that the, the word of God has one unified message about Christ. Here in Jeremiah 31, 34, <clears throat> it talks about the new covenant that Jesus initiated. In the Mark series, we just went into this, where Jesus is accessing Jeremiah 31 to talk about his, his death on the cross. He's literally saying his death is going to bring the new covenant. Well, here's the nature of the new covenant. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord. You're not going to learn about God because people tell you about God. Instead, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So our sin will be washed away and this will create the, 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 um, the opportunity for an intimate personal relationship with God. This is Old Testament prophecy. Agur complains about it. Jeremiah 31 prophesies that that complaint will be answered through the new covenant. Jesus shows up and says, hey, this is the new covenant in my blood. Yeah. That's pretty neat. That's pretty cool stuff. So um, at the time of Proverbs, though, it's not a reality yet. So he goes on and Agur continues to like sort of bring th these questions that are meant to like shock us into the reality that apart from Jesus anyways, we don't know God. We're far from God and our knowledge amounts to futility because it doesn't bring us into relationship with God. So he says, um, <clears throat> who has ascended and descended? Right? No, nobody has. Only God, only God can do this. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? That's the next rhetorical question. The answer is supposed to be only God, right? God. And um, gathering the wind in his fists, some would say this is a creation thing, but others, and I, I lean this way, that this isn't about just creating the wind or creating the weather patterns or something, but rather this is about God controlling the weather. So gathering, uh, the phrase of grasping the wind is a, is a phrase even used in the Old Testament times, like in Ecclesiastes, this is grasping the wind. It's the idea of futility. Like if you try to grab air, you can't. And when you use the phrase, not just air, but wind, um, it implies that you can't control the storms. You can't control the movement of the clouds. You, you can't control thing, these things that are much bigger than you. The next, que the next question is who's wrapped the waters in his garments? And here it might be, Again, it might be the idea of just simply grabbing and controlling, just like you grab the wind with your hand. You can't control the waters. So put these together and you have this idea of the wind and the waters. This might refer to rain, storms, or it could refer to the oceans, that as well. But from their perspective, right, they're, they're in a farming culture, right? They, they need the rain to happen at certain times. Uh, they need it to not happen at other times. Like you don't want it raining during harvest, but it has to rain before that. And so... You don't want storms that might destroy your crops also. These, these are things the farmers are constantly aware of the fact that they can't control these things. Only God can. And why is he asking us all this stuff? Because the point is, just like you can't ascend into heaven and go just talk with God to know him, you can't gather the wind in your fist. You can't control the garments. And finally, you can't establish the ends of the earth, which is a creation term. He speaks of creating the ends of the earth or when God created the earth, he established it. It could also refer to like creating stability across the planet. Like God keeps it, keeps it together. He holds things together so they don't just stop and fall apart. It could refer to that as well, but it's probably creation terminology here. Um, the idea is this, like you are so different from God. You're so utterly and totally different from God. How could you possibly understand him? Imagine a three-year-old coming up and thinking that they really know you, an adult, 
who has like a marriage and a mortgage and you've got your own kids and you've got jobs and you have a long history and you've got your educational history and you've got this, the, all the things you've gone through. And this three-year-old looks at you and they're just like, I know you intimately and personally. And you're, and you're just thinking like, you're not even capable. Like I might love you. You may have feelings for me, but you can't know me like that. In fact, part of life, side note here, but part of life is realizing how much, even when we grow up, many of us don't really know our parents very well because there's no like life experience crossover yet. And sometimes it's when you turn 20, 30, when you have your own kids, when you go through different things that you suddenly feel like you understand your parents better because you've gone through some of that stuff so you know them more intimately. Isn't that interesting? But how far is the gap? If the gap between you and a three-year-old is such, how far is the gap between you and God? If you can't do what God does and you can't go access him freely, how would you possibly understand him truly? And the answer is like, you don't. And so this is what we're left with. We're left with this, this angst. Agur is leaving us with angst at the end of Proverbs. All, Proverbs leaves you with the idea of like, you know, you don't really know God intimately, but you got to just listen to what he says. Just trust him. Just do what he says. He knows better than you. Here's the wisdom that God gives you for life. But man, there's this longing. I want to know him better. I want to know him better. Then we get to the final question. What is his name? Or his son's name. And this one gets strange. Real quick. Because the obvious answer to every question so far is God. Right? Who's ascended and descended? Okay, God. Who's gathered the wind in his fist? God. Who's wrapped the waters in his garments? God. Who's established the ends of the earth? God. What is his name? Or his son's name? And here is where an Israelite would think, I know his name. His name is Yahweh. But Agur adds this. Or his son's name. And suddenly it becomes a riddle they don't know how to solve. His son's name? Okay, I mean, I don't know God's son's name. And the whole idea, this is so beautifully, the, the poetic connection here between the Old and New Testament. The idea is this, you think you know God because you know what he's revealed to you in the Old Testament. You know that, you know, he spoke to Moses and all that. But if you don't know the name of his son, you don't really know him. And you need to know him. This is like, I feel like it's the gospel in the book of Proverbs, isn't it? So his son's name, the, the, the context of Proverbs chapter 30 verses one through four is this, like, I'm a dummy. I don't know anything because I don't know God intimately. And I can't know God intimately until I know the name of his son. That's the context of Proverbs 30 verses one through four. I think it's amazing. I think it's so consistent with scripture. The New Testament confirms this. The key to answering the problem of knowing God intimately is knowing his son, and then you can know him. And Proverbs 17, 3, excuse me, I'm sorry, John 17, 3, Jesus says something similar. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In John 17, 6, he says, Notice, what does he say? I want to know God's name. And the Israelite might be like, well, I know his name. His name is Yahweh. But, but, but here the word name seems to mean something more intimate, more than just what you call him, but rather knowing him deeply. And so this is what Jesus says about this. And I don't know if maybe he was thinking about Proverbs 30. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they've kept your word. Jesus says, look, I'm giving them eternal life. It's knowing me and knowing you. I have manifested your name. I have answered the problem that Proverbs 30 has posed, right? <clears throat> this is really, this is neat stuff. Okay, let's let's go, um, 
We're going to do two things. We're going to look at confirming this in the New Testament, that Jesus really is what the Bible's all about. Then we're going to go back to Proverbs 30 and look at each element one more time real quickly because you're going to see that everything it says about like who has done this and who has done that, that they're all actually true of Jesus in very important ways. So in Ephesians chapter 3, we realize that uh, the, okay, let me back up. I, I don't want to get ahead of myself in my head here <laughs> or get ahead of you. Um, Proverbs presents us with a mystery. What is God's name? What is his son's name? It it suggests that even if you have the, the knowledge and wisdom of Agor, even the knowledge of the Old Testament, you still don't know the right answer here. So you're just left with the longing. There's a mystery and I wish I knew the answer and then I would know God and then I'd be complete. Uh, this is Proverbs, right? Ephesians chapter three talks about the same mystery, but now from the other end after it's been revealed. Paul says, by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, the mystery, um, which means something that has now been revealed. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Jesus, he is the ultimate mystery. It, it, it all flows through him, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. That's a goer, man. He's like complaining. I don't know. I don't, I don't know it. I don't know the right answers here. I just know I need it as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Then we read on uh, verses eight and nine in Ephesians three. To me, the very least of all, all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. God, the creator of all things, this is what Proverbs 30 talks about. He has this hidden mystery that we want access to and we can get access to it if we just know the name of his son. Ephesians 3.11 <clears throat> goes on and says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord because it was always part of the plan. Then verses 17 through 19, I'm skipping through Ephesians 3 here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is the conclusion of the mystery. When you receive the mystery, Jesus dwells in your hearts. What is that if not intimate knowledge of God, the knowledge that Agur is desiring, is, is crying out for, knows he needs, and knows that if he doesn't have it, he's missing out on the very core wisdom of life. So Christ dwells in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Here, Jesus is the mystery that Agur complains about or desires to know. When he comes, you get the knowledge of God and it's intimate relational knowledge. It surpasses other knowledge, which is why Agur says, compared to this, all the stuff I know, I'm dumb. I'm, I'm more stupid than any man. There's more. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 this is where Peter, not just Paul, but Peter talks about this too, this idea that there's this mystery that the authors of the Old Testament, they're aware of, but they don't understand it. But they're aware of it. They don't know how to solve it, but they know it's there. Um, <clears throat> he talks about this as our salvation in Christ. As to this salvation, the prophets, that would include Agur, I believe here, right? Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries. They were trying to figure out what was going on about the gospel plan, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ was within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them 
that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What is the statement here? Um, a couple things. You can get lost because it's a long sentence with a lot of details. But First Peter verse chapter 1, verses 10 uh, through 12 is saying, A, there's these mysteries are all written in the Old Testament. The B, the prophets wanted to understand them, but they didn't fully understand them. They wrote things they didn't fully understand, right? Speaking of Agur, Isaiah, Isaiah wanted to know what his servant songs were all about. We talked about those just last week. But this is stuff that they wanted to know. And <clears throat> three, what they did know was that it was for, for other people in a future generation. They just knew it was a longing that would one day be fulfilled, right? As Jeremiah talks about the new covenant that will, that will come at some point in time. And then four, it is for you. You do have the mystery. You do have the knowledge now. I think this is awesome because the entire Bible is about Jesus, right? Now, looking at Proverbs 30 one more time, well, two more times, but real quick points. <clears throat> um, what is what is the mystery that he's that he thinks is going to like solve the problem? I wish I knew God. He's like, what is his name or his son's name? This is what I need to know. His name or his son's name. What is it? It's interesting is they're almost presented like there's one name for both which is how Jesus talks about baptism, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the mystery is the name. Now, two other places in the Old Testament, this mystery of a name of a certain special person comes up. And I want to mention those because they're both Christophanies, or in my opinion, they're appearances of Jesus before the incarnation. He he manifests himself in some way. One of them is where Jake, <clears throat> pardon me, Jacob wrestles with God. Now, Allow, as I read this passage, allow the weirdness of it to hit you. Jacob wrestles with God. This is supposed to strike, it should strike you as odd. Okay, I think it would strike anybody as odd if, if you're letting it. If you don't think, oh, I already know this. I heard it in Sunday school. Like if you just let yourself really read it as if for the first time. And let's try and figure out the identity of the person that Jacob's wrestling with based upon what we now know from the Old and New Testament and even what Agur is complaining about or desiring to know, which is the name of his son. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Okay. It's called a man. A man wrestled with him. Now the word man can be referred, can refer to various different beings. It doesn't have to be a human to be called a man, but initially it's called a man. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, who the, the man touches the socket of Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he was, while he wrestled with them. Okay. So this man's not prevailing. Right, so he cripples Jacob. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now in Old Testament uh, context, the, the, the person who blesses you is greater than you. So this man's wrestling with him. Jacob overcomes him somehow, but then supernaturally dislocates Jacob's hip. And then Jacob's like, I just won't let go. He just holds on. I'm not gonna let you go till you bless me. So he knows he needs a blessing. These are all very strange elements. So he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and have and men and have prevailed. Now this is where it starts to get even stranger -er, where you've striven with God and with men. Now we all know, okay, with men, Jacob had striven with Laban. Jacob had striven with uh, Esau. He had, he had striven with these, I'm using the word striven too many times now and it stops making sense in my own head, possibly yours. So he had, uh, you know, gone against them. He had wrestled with them. 
But where did Jacob strive or wrestle with God? And the only explanation of where he wrestled with God would be in this moment right here, right now. This is the first hint in the passage that the man is somehow God. The man, he, the person Jacob, Jacob is wrestling with. Then verse 29, maybe in response to this, Jacob going, wait, wrestled with God? He responds and Jacob asks him, please tell me your name. This sounds like the thing Agur wanted to know. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So he will not tell him his name. The, the man, the person that Jacob wrestles with, is, see, is it's implied that he's God. Jacob wants to know his name and he will not reveal his name. Now, Jacob knew God's, God's name at this point, right? But, but there's something else going on here. It's not just what do I call you. There's something more to it than the name. It's more like what Agur is saying. I want to know you. Jacob, so Jacob named the place Peniel for he said, I've seen the face of God and yet my life has been preserved. This is where the big reveal is, okay, Jacob clearly thinks that this, this was an encounter with God, that somehow God, this was a theophany or an appearance of God, I would say a Christophany. And it sounds like a gourd in Proverbs 30. He's like, I wish I knew his name. If I knew his name, I could know him, the name of his son. And here, no name is given. Now there's another place that's very similar. And it's also a Christophany, and it's in Judges 13. So in Judges 13, by the way, this is part of a series of videos. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link and put this in my playlist on Jesus in the Old Testament. And I'm going to link, th that playlist is linked down below. This is like over 20 hours of content that is just about Jesus in the Old Testament all over the place. And I encourage you to check it out. It'll, it'll bless your socks off. Not literally, though. All right, Judges 13, 3. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Okay, this might sound like Jesus' birth, but no, this is about this is about Samson. Samson was one of the most interesting and worst judges of Israel. And this is where his birth is going to be announced. The one announcing it is called the angel of the Lord. And kind of like with the Jacob passage, we want to look at this and ask, who is this person who's announcing this? You know, just like we want to know who wrestled with Jacob, in which case it was God. Um, I would say God the Son. But we also want to know who this angel of the Lord is who's announcing this to Manoah and his wife about Samson being born. Then in verse 5, we have, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so that's the announcement about Samson. And the woman goes to her husband and says, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. Okay. So there's something really interesting about this person that came to me. He's like, I'll call him a man of God. So he came from God, but, but he's, he was like an angel. Um, earlier, the pastor calls him the angel of the Lord. And she's like, I don't know his name. I wish I knew his name. Then we read on in verse 15, Manoah finally gets a chance to uh, talk to the angel of the Lord. So Manoah, the, the husband, said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord, and here's a little clue, every time in the Old Testament where you see the angel of the Lord, I, th I think every occasion, if, if not, perhaps there's one exception, it's actually going to be a Christophany when you read the passage carefully. It's going to be the second person of the Trinity. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. So he's not just looking for a meal to join, to, to join in on together, but rather you can give an offering. You can give an offering to God. So Manoah did not know 
Formino did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So he knows he's like some sort of divine messenger of some kind. He doesn't understand the details, but he will soon. Manoah said to the angel, this so connects to Proverbs 30, to um, to the, the passage um, in Genesis with Jacob wrestling with God. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. He wants to know his name. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. And just gives him crickets. Right? Manoah is not going to know the name of this person. Whoever this is, Manoah will not learn his name. There is a being who seems to be one who comes to men to help them and deal with them. And that being seems to be God himself, but is also called like the angel of the Lord or the messenger of God. And you don't get to know his name. And Agur in Proverbs 30 says, if only I knew, then I could know God. Then I could truly know God. So Manoah, we'll, we'll read on through verse 22. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. So he's not just like some normal being here, um, not just a human, obviously. Uh, when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now, the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Now I know who's, who he belongs to. But what Manoah says next in verse 22 strikes us as somewhat odd. He says to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. Manoah's commentary, and this is inspired here in the book of Judges, is that what he saw was God himself. And he's worried that he's going to die. Now his wife, who is the more level-headed of the two, she's like, yeah, if, if he wanted a desire to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted our offering. Like that's not going to happen. But the mystery of the passage is this, and was related to Proverbs 30. Here's the angel of the Lord who turns out to be God himself, whose name is desirable to know, but whose name you cannot yet know. It's wonderful, but you don't get to know what it is yet. This is the name that, that now every knee will bow at, the name of Jesus, right? This is the one who's also called Emmanuel, who is God with us. This is the mystery revealed. This is how you will know God. You will access God. You will have intimate relationship with God when you know the Son, when you put your faith and trust in the Son of God. And that has been the plan all along. Now, you can look at this, and I'll just briefly mention this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 31, what we have is this whole section. You can read about it. The idea, though, the emphasis in 1 Corinthians there is that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God and that the wisdom of man is folly compared to Jesus, who is God's wisdom and has become to us wisdom from God. This, when you layer 1 Corinthians 1 on top of Proverbs 30, you see that it's the same, it's the same message, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians, man's knowledge is folly. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the one that makes us wise and in him we know God, right? This is what, what he says, like all my knowledge, I'm dumb. If I just knew this one thing, the son right? What is God's name? What is his son's name? Then I could know God. This is very, very uh, good. All right. Now let's look briefly at these four statements in chapter 30, verse four of Proverbs, where he says, who is ascended into heaven and descended. This is about Jesus. Like Jesus has ascended and descended. And when you layer this, the connections are so many in Proverbs 30. Like as I study it, I was shocked to see there's more than I even thought previously. But in John 3.13, we see a parallel. 
No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Okay, well, this is, this is what Agur was saying. Like, hey, no one, no one can go up and down to, to, to know what God is like and tell us. Well, Jesus, he knows what's, what God is like and he tells us. Now, in the context of John, he's telling him, you should accept my testimony because I'm from heaven. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling you heavenly things. Jesus is saying, in context, in John 3, Nicodemus, I'm telling you, you got to be born again. You got to believe in me and you'll have eternal life. This is, and you need to know this. How do you not know this? Jesus isn't verifying it or, or, or supporting his claims about this knowledge because he's the one who comes from heaven, who ascends and descends, so to speak. This is exactly what Proverbs 30 is longing for, that Jesus then answers. So who's ascended and descended into heaven? Oh, well, that would be Jesus. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Well, that's about controlling the weather. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Well, that, that combined with the wind, wind and water, we're talking about storms and rain and all that kind of thing. Well, then we go to Mark 14, 41, which we've, uh, uh, 441 rather, which we've covered a little while ago in our Mark series. And after Jesus calms the, the storm in the gospel of Mark, what do they say? They become very much afraid and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? He can hold the wind in his hands. He can gather the water in his garments. And then the statement is, who is he? Nobody can do this. What do you mean nobody can do it? Well, I mean like in Proverbs 30, nobody can do it. It's only God. And Mark is trying to teach us that Jesus is God with us. Verse 4 also speaks about who established the ends of the earth. And that, that means like, you know, how can you know God if you haven't been you know, the creator of all things like he is. Your your um, experiential overlap is so little that you couldn't really know him intimately. Jesus is the one who's established the ends of the earth. He He's he's the creator. John 1 talks about it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word here is the son, Jesus. Um, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, which would include what? The ends of the earth. So all things ultimately created by Christ. Colossians says the same thing. But we also have another passage that's really interesting. Psalm 22, verse 27, that relates to this. And it's, I remember I said the ends of the earth could be a reference to God creating, but the ends of the earth, who's establishing, could be also a reference to God being the one who sort of like creates stability around the world. He holds it together. He creates stability. And ends of the earth is a phrase sometimes used not to talk about places, but to talk about people people from all lands, from a Jewish perspective, Gentile people, right? Non-Jewish people. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-seven talks about how Jesus establishes the people all around the world, not just the Jewish people. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. This is one of my favorite prophecies in the Old Testament, Psalm 22. It's all about the cross. It's, it gives more details about the cross than we get really in the New Testament and um, and here written hundreds of years before it happened. But what people miss is the prophecy doesn't just talk about the cross. It talks about what happens after the cross. Jesus dies, he rises, and then people around the world, people all over, all of humanity, there will be people from every nation, tribe, tongue that will turn and worship God because of what Jesus did. So he's establishing the ends of the earth in another in another fashion as well. So Jesus here, in, in, uh, in, in my conclusion here, Jesus unlocks the Old Testament. It is Jesus who gives us the meaning of Proverbs 30, who tells us what the son's name is so that we might know the father's name because he manifests his name. And 
he, uh, Agur asks the audience in the Old Testament to agree with him. Surely you know. He's sarcastically saying, come on, agree with me. You're dumb because you don't know these things either. Jesus comes, reveals them to us, and now we can know God. And now we can have the wisdom that, that God desires for us to have. There are many Old Testament commentaries. As I read Proverbs 30 and I read, I opened up lots of commentaries and read through bunches of them. Uh, there's many who, who don't even mention this, this passage about the son's name. They'll just skip it. They literally skip it. But to me, it's the key. It's the key. And Jesus is the key to the Old Testament. If you really want to understand the Old Testament, you're going to have to have Jesus in your mind. If you want to look at this, you're going to have to know that the whole story is there. There's, you know, a good example is these Sherlock Holmes stories. Either you read them or you watch them. Imagine if you watched the Sherlock Holmes movies or stories, read them, and you stopped reading right before the reveal. Right before Holmes is like, here's what happened, you know, and, and then you get the whole story. Imagine if you stopped there. It would be a strange riddle that was never solved. And you might try to piece together the puzzle, but it, you, what you need is the author to tell you this is what it's all about. Then you can go back and you can rewatch it or even reread it and you see it in a whole new light. This is what we get with Jesus in the Old Testament. You go to the Bible, you read it in the Old Testament, you see riddles and mysteries and prophecies and sometimes vague and sometimes clear. And then Jesus shows up and then he, his, his very person unlocks the Old Testament. This is why the New Testament will actually talk about this in detail. First Corinthians, sorry, Second uh, Corinthians three thirteen, about how the veil is lifted and we understand the Old Testament when we come to Jesus. So um, here's what Paul talks about. He says, "Are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of the of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this time, this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted." because it is removed in Christ. Many commentaries will actually comment, here's a little pet peeve of mine, <laughs> they'll, they'll do their commentaries in the Old Testament and they'll ignore the light that Jesus gives us to understand the Old Testament. So they pass right over something like Proverbs 30 verse 4. And I'm like, man, but that's the whole point. That's the whole point is that we need this. This is this is the thing we need to know and Christ is, is the thing we need to know. So uh, to this day, whenever Moses is read, those who don't have Jesus, who don't don't see Christ, they, they haven't watched the part where Sherlock reveals the, the, the riddle. Uh, Jesus is the one who reveals it. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lays over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, Jesus, the veil is taken away. That's what happens with Jesus in the Old Testament. Man, we're like on the road to Emmaus where, where they say at the end of Luke, Jesus is giving them a Bible study to explain the Old Testament to them and how much it's all about Christ. They say our hearts burned within us while he was explaining or opening the scriptures to us. That's awesome. That is awesome. Don't miss Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm going to put a link up here to, uh, right up here, I guess, to the series I have on Jesus in the Old Testament. Look, the only goal here is I think it's going to bless you so much. It's the most exciting and enjoyable and fulfilling series I've ever studied or taught is Jesus in the Old Testament. It is definitely, um, shows God's divine hand. And if you're interested in watching, even for apologetic reasons, if you, you know, I, I wouldn't watch one of those videos and conclude, therefore the Bible is has unity in Christ. But if you watch 23 of them, you're going to be like, wow, um, that's not a coincidence. The Bible's a message system to reveal to us the most important wisdom in, in creation, which is to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word, for the goodness of your word, for the intricacies of your word, and how they point us to Jesus, who becomes 
not just one we know about. We don't just hear his name. We're not just a, we don't just know what to answer when when Agur says like, "What's his name? What's his son's name?" But rather, we get to know you intimately, Jesus. You crossed the experiential difference uh, between us. You came and you took on our form and you lived our lives so that you could then restore us to to you to to God, so that we could be in relationship with you. And now, Lord, you give us your Holy Spirit so that we can know you intimately. And we love you. And that is what we live for. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for joining. I will be back with you on Friday for the Q&A this week. And I'm answering your questions live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. At least almost every Friday. Sometimes we don't we do not do it, but almost always. And um, um, this week, I'll put out at least one more video, uh, maybe, maybe even a couple, that will be more shorter videos answering specific challenging questions. I did this interview with these guys that run a subreddit on the Bible. And they they gathered questions from the audience of their subreddit and then sent me these questions. And it was a, a whole bunch of questions. It ended up being like a two and a half hour interview. And they were like the most challenging questions I've ever had in one cluster, I think. And so very hard stuff. But because it's so long, I'm actually chopping them into individual videos and we'll be posting them uh, over the next several weeks, probably. We'll see. My plans sometimes change because I'm like, no, no, I have a better idea. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, otherwise, thank you guys for joining me. Really glad to have you here. Isn't it, isn't it exciting seeing the connections that God has given us and the message, don't miss the message. The whole point of it all was this. The real knowledge you need is a relation, a relationship with God that you get through Jesus Christ. And that's what Agur was saying a thousand years before Christ. Pretty cool.